Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Tyler Hardy. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch, and um, I'm married to amazing Ashley. She's down here. She's got her rain boots on, smart woman. And I got four awesome kids and another one on the way. So that's pretty exciting. So there you go. Cat's out of the bag. All right. So, um, you know, uh, we are so glad if you're here and if you're a guest, I just want you to know that we've specifically been praying for you. We've really been praying for you. I mean, specifically been praying for you and God's highlighting things in this city. God's doing things in this city and that you showing up here on a Sunday morning in the midst of a rainy day um, uh, is, is something special because we were just praying earlier um, with, with a group of people and just really trusting that God's going to do something on everyone's heart today, and specifically for those, this is your first time, just wanting you to encounter the love of God in a fresh way, wanting you to encounter the love and the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God in maybe a way you haven't before, or maybe you have years ago and you've gotten stale or something, but just wanting God to meet with you in a fresh way again. Well, for me, um, growing up, we moved around a lot, and uh, people always ask, was your dad in the military? No, he wasn't in the military. We just moved around a lot because he had different jobs and tried to take on different business ventures, and so we got used to moving. It could be anywhere from six months to, to, to maybe two years when we would be at a house or at a school district, and then we would get up and move, and so part of that coming and going meant we had to try out different churches often, and so um, growing up, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, and and, uh, and, and we would go to, to, to different churches. We went to all kinds of different denominations. We just tried to find a place that, that would fit for us. And, you know, churches are interesting, right? Because there's different things that kind of make them distinct, right? Um, and so it could be the, the type of clothing people wear. Um, maybe people dress up. Maybe people dress down a little, a little more casual. It could be um, uh, the way that the preacher communicates. He either uh, preaches one style or another. Um, it could be that the church has Sunday school programs, or they don't, or they have equipping classes, or whatever you may have come from, or we may have visited small churches and big churches. I remember one of the churches in Austin we visited was just um, a brand new church that met in a middle school. And then the, after the service, you drove over for Sunday school at these little portables at this office complex about five minutes away. So that was kind of interesting. And, 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 and so for my family, we had to grow up going to different churches and, you know, one of the most distinctive things about churches is their style of worship, right? It's kind of how do they worship. So you may be from a church to where, um, where the pastor not only preaches, but is also the lead music guy, right? Um, uh, you, you may be from a church to where there are 20 to 50 people in robes, and it's more or less a professional choir, and they are trained and practice, and they harmonize, and it sounds amazing. Um, you may come from a church to where... Uh, it's a one-man band, or there's 15 people in the band, right? You may come from a church that has electric guitar or is very much against electric guitars, right? <clears throat> I just read a, a little survey, just to keep you up to speed here, that currently in America, 50% of churches now have an electric guitar, which is a big deal, apparently. That's up from 35% in the year 2000, so that's a big deal, all right? So here's the deal. In the church world, there are things that are very distinctive, about worship, right? And so growing up, we went to different churches and visiting different places, and that made things very distinct. And I remember growing up, and, and, and you know, growing up in the church, and my mom and dad, like, I knew we were supposed to worship, 
And I knew that whatever the setting, we were in settings with choirs and with bands and all the likes, that when it was time to sing, that we were supposed to sing. Sometimes we had hymnals, you read out of them. Sometimes, even before the age of the whole projector screen phenomenon, right, you just had to read it here, you actually had to know the lyrics, right? And so, um, and so it doesn't matter how we were singing, but I knew you were supposed to sing. And so I would sing, and I wasn't the greatest singer in the world, but I was singing, giving my heart to God. Um, but I wasn't exactly sure why I was worshiping. But I knew that I should, right? And, and honestly, I would say for a lot of us, just part of growing up, is that we do a lot of things because we've been told to do them, or we've seen people do them, and then we just do them because, well, that's how they do it. I should do that, right? I mean, which should be the way you grow up early on. You see mom and dad eat like this, and they're using a fork and a knife to cut the steak. You should probably follow along instead of just like, you know? I mean, there are positive things in trying to mimic what other people are doing, but eventually there comes to a point in a child's life where they need to know, well, why do we eat the steak with a fork and a knife instead of with our hands? Because it seems pretty funny with our hands, right? Like, wh- wh- why, do we, why do we sing these songs? I know we should. I know we have a full band. We've got a sound system. I mean, there's obviously a big investment here for the song portion. So, like, why do we actually do Why does that even, why does that matter? Well, where we're going the next seven weeks is we're doing a series called Passion and Purpose. And really, the series is going to be about we are passionate about Jesus, right? And we're passionate about him, and we're all about the purposes of God. But there's some, there's some specific things that we need to unpack and dive into as a church to understand God's heart behind it. Some of these things are things that we just do, but we're not really sure why we do them, right? And so hopefully today, we're going to help you out with worship. Why do we worship? What is it all about? You see, in the Old Testament, God established a covenant with a people called the Jews. Um, They were the chosen people of God. And his goal was through this people, eventually becoming the nation of Israel, the Israelites, his goal was through these people, he would demonstrate his love and his kindness and his mercy. Ultimately, he would demonstrate his nature through a people to the rest of the world. That he would display his glory and his goodness through a people so that it could reach other people, right? Remember in Genesis 12, God gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, Abraham, go forth, go into this land, multiplied. And by the way, Abraham, I want you, to, you are going to be blessed so that you can be a blessing, right? And so we actually get to inherit in that same, in that same line of thought with the fact that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. When Jesus came for the new covenant, he all of a sudden opened it up. It was no longer the Jews had access to God the Father. Now anyone could have access to him. It didn't matter who you were. didn't matter what skin color you had. didn't matter what language you spoke. There was a commonality, which was if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he then gives you access to know the Father. And now all of a sudden, now you are brought into the family of God by which he is meaning to bless you so that then you can be a blessing. Right? God doesn't bless us simply for the blessing to stop there. We are blessed to then be a blessing. So this was God's desire for the people of Israel. And a central theme for them was this, that when they obeyed God, things went well. When they disobeyed him, things didn't go very well, right? And that wasn't just the Old Testament, by the way. That's actually right now, right? Like, when you obey God, hey, there is good fruit. There are things that are good. When you disobey him, it's just not going to be good for you. 
And any parent knows you're trying to train your children to understand that the more you obey mom and dad, the better off things are going to be around here. But the more you disobey them, it's just not going to be a very fun Saturday, right? That is God's heart with us today. So I want to give you a couple of things because the Jews had a central theme of worshiping God, of needing the presence of God. Remember, this is prior to Jesus coming down on the earth, dying on the cross. For thousands of years, you had the people of God, the Jews, chosen by God to be in relationship with him, but he set out a pretty strict deal into how they were to have a relationship with him. But a lot of these things were, 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 were gravitating towards this idea that when we are obeying God and the blessing of God, all of a sudden his presence will be with us. And when God's presence was with them, they were winning battles. When God's presence was with them, the rains came. When the God's presence was with them, the women were able to give birth and and, and families were blessed, and crops yielded much, and there was blessing all around. But all of a sudden, when they started disobeying, curses came. Armies came and wiped them out, men, women, and children. They were desolate. They were thrown in captivity in Egypt, later on in Babylon, and both those results of deep sin and deep idolatry that they had towards other gods. So here's brief history of the Jews' relationship to the presence of God. If you remember Moses, he went up on the mountain, and um, God spoke to him and gave him the Ten Commandments, which were to be obeyed by the Jews. And on the journey to the Promised Land, after God set them free from captivity and slavery in Egypt, God gave Moses specific instructions on how to build something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this huge tent that was very ornate that was kind of like a portable sanctuary. That's what the tabernacle was. So they said, you can set this up, even as you're out in the desert on your way to the promised land, set it up, and if you do it in the right way, and then I'm going to allow Moses to go in, because he's the leader here, he's the one coming to me, I'm going to allow Moses to go into the tent, he can speak with me, and I'll speak with him, and he'll tell you guys what I'm saying, and when I go in, when Moses goes in there, the presence of God dwells in this tabernacle in this place. And so they knew they needed the presence of God. So they would set up their camp and their tents, And they would set up the tabernacle right there. They would set it up close to the camp so that they knew they needed God's nearness, God's presence with them to survive. Well, later on, as they got into the promised land, King David established, um, they, they established that Jerusalem was to be the capital of Israel. And he had a son, King Solomon. And King Solomon was given very clear instructions on how to build this new temple called Solomon's Temple, right? We know it as. And so he built this temple, and some estimates is that it, in, in, in gold and silver, was, was uh, the, the, the cost of the temple was about $200 billion, right? So you all know Jerry's World up there in Dallas, you Cowboys fans? That was a billion, right? So $200 billion just in gold and silver. Now, you're like, wow, did they have to build this grander thing? No, but this is what God's instructions set up for them, and he said, look, I want you to build a place that is unrivaled. I want you to build a place that is like nothing else the world has ever seen or will ever see so that it just says a little more of a statement, I am God, and I am bigger than everybody else. And when you come to my place, there is something sacred. There is something holy about it. And so Solomon created, they, they, they built this timber. They, they built this temple, and God's presence dwelt with them in the temple. And how they had it set up is there was a priest they could go into this place called the Holy of Holies where they had this big curtain, this big veil, and they could go in there one time a year 
and, and, and what they would do is they would make atonement for the, all the sins of the people of Israel, meaning they would actually offer up a blood sacrifice to God, and that priest could go, and he's the only one that could enter in. No one else. Anyone else entered in, they would die. Because God said only one can enter into this place. He must be clean. He must be the high priest. And he can enter in one time a year behind this veil where God's presence dwelt. And he went and made atonement for the people. So every year, though, they needed that to happen. Well, fast forward. The people of Israel sinned, and the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. They were then exiled into Babylon, and for 70 years they stayed there. Eventually, they got the right to head back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. You know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the walls, and then eventually they then rebuilt the second temple. Yet it's interesting, because even though the sacrifices were reinstituted, and the worship happened again in the second temple, never again was it mentioned in the Bible that the presence of God filled that temple like it did before, until Jesus came. At the time of Jesus' death on the cross in 33 A.D., The temple in Jerusalem contained a veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence, from the rest of the temple where men dwelt. This signified that man was separated from God by sin, and only the high priest could enter one time each year. Which means that at the time of Jesus' death, they still had to have the priest go in. But it says in Matthew 27, 50, as Jesus is dying on the cross, says this, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why is that significant? Um, This wasn't like a curtain you can reach up and just tear. I'm pretty sure it was 50, 60 feet tall. And it was very robust of a curtain. And so for it literally to tear in that moment, what did that actually signify? What it signified is that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for all time, for all the sins, not just for the Jews, for everyone. And then he ripped the veil and said, no longer do you have to go through a priest to have access to God. Now you can come right to me to have access to God, which is maybe one of the greatest moments in history, if not the greatest moment in all of history, that God said, my son sacrificed We'll make a way for everybody, not just a specific race. We'll make a way for everybody, not just because you're born into a certain family. But we'll make a way for everybody who says, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. You tore the veil. Now I get to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now I get to enter into the presence of God, but it's through Jesus. No longer is it a curtain. It is Christ. Right? This is what the people of Israel were so shocked by. Wait a second. And then Jesus went on teaching right before he died, but he was saying, look, there's a day coming. There's a day coming that worship's going to look a little bit different than what you guys have experienced. You see, um, the problem for us is that we choose to worship what, what we choose to worship, to put the center of our lives, it actually determines the welfare of our entire life. What we choose to put at the center of our lives and actually give our affections to, worship, put the center, lift our hands up to, lift our minds up to, give our heart to, what we choose to do with that, that is indicative of the welfare of our entire lives. If we choose to build our life around worshiping anything other than God, it will always lead to problems. 
If you choose to put anything at the center of your life other than God, it will. It's not that it maybe will. It's fact. It will lead to a lot of problems. A friend of mine shared a definition of idolatry. He said, idolatry is giving to someone or something else that which only belongs to God. Idolatry is giving to someone or something else that which only belongs to God. You see, he alone is worthy of our entire lives. Nothing else is. So let's fast forward to Jesus and his teaching on worship. On his way to Galilee in John chapter 4, you can open your Bibles up there. Jesus passed through Samaria, and while his disciples headed into the nearby town to grab some food, he sat down at this well, Jacob's well, and began conversing with a Samaritan woman. And through this interaction, Jesus surprises the woman by knowing a little-known fact that apparently no one else knew about, but Jesus knew, and he said this, Hey, call your husband out here. She said, I don't have a husband. A little curtain short. He's like, you're right, you don't. You actually have five. And the one you're with right now isn't your husband either. Now, this lady's pretty sharp because then she says, you must be a prophet. Wow, to know that, you must have a little bit of insight there. So then she asks him a question. She says this in John 4, 20 through 22. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He had to know that the Samaritans were people um, who were seen as unclean by the Jews. Um, and they also had a temple on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. Now, this was not Jerusalem. So they actually made their own temple, their own place to worship God amidst other things at this other site. So Jesus says to her, you worship what you do not know. You see, the Samaritans established their own religion. They were seen as kind of a blended people. They intermarried with foreign nations who had other gods and other idols. They also even had their own version of the Pentateuch, which for us is the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's called the Pentateuch. They had their own version of that where they changed a few words up to fit for them being the chosen people. <clears throat> they were considered by the Jews a lost cause and beyond that a very unclean, dirty people that many Jews actually would avoid walking through Samaria and would take the long route to get to Jerusalem because they didn't want to be unclean just walking in their land. It was a big deal. So for Jesus to be hanging out talking to this woman was completely out of line culturally for the Jews. And for him to even ask her previously in this, he said, hey, I'd like some water. And she said, you don't have a pail, you don't have a bucket, right? For him to even, even suggest the fact that he would be willing for her to draw water for him, to drink for the bucket, that was all uncleanness. So here's Jesus interacting with this person he wasn't supposed to be interacting with, but you know, Jesus didn't just adhere to all the cultural norms. He was coming to bring the kingdom of God. Not a kingdom that had already existed. He was bringing something new. And so Jesus here converses with the woman. He says, you worship what you do not know. You see, they were worshiping a God they did not know. Then Jesus says, we worship what we know. Salvation comes to the Jews. Meaning that the salvation, that the Messiah, the chosen one, was not going to come from the Gentiles 
or the Samaritans, anyone else that was going to come from the Jews. And that this God that we know is a God by relationship. It's a God of relationship. The one that we worship, we worship him from a place of relationship. And I would say that much like the Samaritans, people today are, are in a category of worshiping what they do not know. They, they know how to sing, you know. Um, people know how to sing songs. We all listen to radio or different artists over the years and worship different things. We all know how to sing. And, um, and a lot of times people sing to things. They're not even sure why they're singing. Just like I was growing up a lot of times, going in church and singing a song. And it sounded nice, but I wasn't really sure what I was doing or why I was doing it. Well, Jesus continues on in verse 23 and 24 and says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I'll read that again. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit and truth, huh? So what does that mean? We've probably heard that phrase before. You may have heard it before in church. I don't know. What does that really mean? Well, first got to know that God is spirit, meaning that God's existence is ever-present. He is not tied by time and space. God is ever-present. In fact, I was just reading a story to my children yesterday. We are reading a little bit of a Bible story, and it was just talking about how, you know, God doesn't have a beginning and an end. God always was. God always is. God will always be. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is always there. God is spirit. And so on earth, even as Moses went into the tabernacle, on earth, even as God's presence was there behind the Holy of Holies in that curtain, it was the presence of God. The presence of God being there in the spirit of God. And so when Jesus says here, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Let's break that down for a minute. So the truth. Um, that's the person, the work of Jesus Christ. J- Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth, to worship in truth, that means Jesus is part of that equation. But then it also says that worship in spirit. You see, you cannot worship the Father outside of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. For Jesus to say, you worship what you don't know, what he's saying is, you don't know Jesus, you don't have the Holy Spirit, therefore what you are worshiping is false in nature because the only way you can actually worship the Creator God, the only way you can have access to Him is how? Through Jesus. And when you give your life to Jesus, He sends His Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden you have Jesus, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. And that actually puts you into a different realm to now worship God. So when you read the words, worship in spirit and in truth. All right, if you look that up in the Greek, what is the fuller meaning? One way to phrase it was this. You literally worship in the realm of the spirit. You worship in the realm of the truth. Think about it. Kings and lords, and you read different stories, and you watch movies, and people have this realm. They have this authority, this jurisdiction, right? Oh, this is the realm of this, the realm of that, right? We're talking about you step into a realm, into a place to where Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you're stepping into that place because that realm actually, it exists inside of you, but you have to access that and step into that and say, I worship God here. That's why God had in the Old Testament, Moses had to step into the tabernacle. 
right? The high priest had to step in behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies, right? That's why you have to, the, the invitation to come to Jesus is there, but you have to step towards him. He's saying, come and dine at my table. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will make you new, but I'm not going to come and grab you by the neck. I'm right here at the table, and the door is always open. But you got to walk through that door. you got to step into my realm. you got to step into this place. I've made a way for you, but I'm not going to hold your hand all the way there because and then I'm forcing you. He's not forcing you to come to know him. He's making himself available. If he was going to force people, things would have looked a little different in the Gospels. He didn't force people. People came to him. Whether he's out multiplying bread and fish, whether he's healing some blind man, or, or sharing at the temple course, people came to Jesus. To worship in spirit and truth means you have to have access to the spirit and truth. You have to have access to Jesus and the Holy Spirit in order to even worship in the first place. And to worship in spirit and in truth means to worship from a place of relationship. Not worshiping to gain relationship. You already have relationship with God by default, because you have relationship with His Son. If you don't have relationship with the Son of God, Jesus, you cannot have relationship with the Father. Remember, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Not because you try hard, not because you sing the right way, or raise your hands, or you lift up, you lift down, you receive, you push out, whatever you want to do. It's not because you sit, or you kneel, or you bow down. It's not because you can harmonize or you can't. doesn't mean because I lose my voice or I just whisper. It has nothing to do with all those behavioral things. But what I will say is that to worship in spirit and truth means that I'm stepping into that place to worship God for who he is, to give him praise, to give him my life. He's given me everything. Therefore, it makes sense that when I worship him, I give him everything back. That it makes sense that he's given me relationship out of a place of relationship, now I get to sing to him, even though I'm a bad singer. Right? He knew that when you were born. You didn't get those kind of pipes. (laughs) Quit whining about it. Some of you wish you were faster. You're just not. You're slower. That's okay. God loves you even so. Right? I cannot sing as good as any of these people up here, although I try privately. (laughs) But I'm not, and God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's not a human. He's not grading us on human terms. You know what he grades us on? Heart. And just a tip, he's the only one in the universe that actually knows what your heart is thinking, doing, feeling at every moment. Not your spouse, not your best friend, not your counselor, not your mom and dad. We're trying to love on our kids, and I can't figure them out half the time. And they came from my bones and flesh, and I know some of their quirks. I'm like, oh, that was kind of like me. And I get some. I have an insider track. I still do not know their heart. So here's the deal with worship. To worship in spirit and truth means you've got to worship from the heart. And you worship from a place of saying, I already have relationship. I already have acceptance. I'm not trying to gain acceptance right now by worshiping God. If you're trying to gain acceptance by worshiping God, that means you actually don't know him. 
So you worship from the place of already knowing him. When he says the worship in spirit of truth, he's also saying, you know what? Um, one day there's a day coming where no longer will I just dwell in the tabernacle. Where I will just dwell in the holy of holies. But I will dwell within you. Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. And it doesn't actually just even mean God with us like he's out there, like every other religion. God with us means he's with me. He's literally inside of me. Right? He's, he's within. It's like God within us. That's <laughs> how you should phrase it. He is God within us. When you access Jesus, he is now within you. You know, a friend of mine was sharing with me that he was discipling a couple of guys and just talking to them about um, their, their, their time with God in the morning, their, their, their devotional life. And, and a couple of the guys said, you know, man, things are kind of stale right now. It's just, I'm not really connecting with the Lord, and I read my Bible, and it's just not that engaging, and I don't really know what to pray for. And he said, okay, great. He said, um, well, let me ask you a few questions. He said, um, um, tell me what you do when you worship. He said, well, I, you know, turn, turn, turn my iTunes on, and I just listen to a song. He said, okay. He said, are you sitting down or standing up? Sitting down. I said, okay. He said, when you listen to a song, do you... Are you singing? You just kind of listen. Well, I'm just listening to the song. So, okay, well, why don't you try this this next week? Um, just try this. Just, just worship. Um, when you turn the song on, actually sing to it. Like, and then instead of sitting down, stand up. And they said, um, uh, try that and get back to me. So these guys tried that, got back to me and said, man, worship's amazing. I said, really? Well, what would you do? Well, I stood up and I sang. Oh, Okay. Then he challenged him with, with the Bible. He said, well, how do you read the Bible? Well, I just kind of just read it, sit there and read it. He said, well, do you read out loud? No. Why don't you try reading out loud? Well, do you take notes at all? No. Why don't you read out loud and take notes and tell me how it goes? The guy comes back, man, it's amazing. The Bible's coming alive to me. Wow, what happened? Well, I started reading out loud and taking notes. Huh. So I figured God's onto something here in this discipleship. This would be for us. So if you're here and you're saying, you know, I want to be passionate about worship. I really want to, Tyler. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I want to be passionate. Here's maybe where we're off. Um, now that we kind of know why we worship, there is another piece, which is how to worship. The how-to is this. Worship was never meant to be passive. It's meant to be active. Worship was never meant to be passive. It's meant to be active. In the Old Testament, there are seven Hebrew words for the word praise in the Bible. Seven words. Two of them, one of them is yada. And that means to lift the hands. When the word praise is there, they would know that means to lift hands. Another Hebrew phrase is halal. Is where we get our word hallelujah. And it means to boast or to celebrate. So that's just two out of the seven words for praise in Hebrew that God instructed the people on how they're supposed to praise and worship. And one of them is lift your hands. The other one is to celebrate. And the other five are all active. Every one of them. Every one of them is calling you to some sort of action. Sing aloud. I mean, every one of these Hebrew phrases for praise, we talk about praise and worship, is active. Which tells me that to be really passionate about worship, you got to know why you worship. you got to know how to worship. How you worship is by participating. Right? So, 
activity and, 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 and participating are the keys to worship. Now, does that mean that you're going to get scolded by God for sitting down during worship? No. Does that mean that I have to have my hands raised during every chorus of every song? No. Does that mean that I need to kind of bounce around and figure out a rhythm? No. What does it mean? Let's go back to worship in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth means you worship from the heart. If you're sitting down, I don't care. We do not have time for a worship police. Hey, put the right hand down a little lower, please. Right? Ma'am, you're laying prostrate. We don't do that. You can go knees only. No. I don't care because God doesn't care. We should care about what God cares about. Not what just we care about. Say it again. We should only care about what actually God cares about, not what we in our culture just care about. Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman. Uh Uh-oh. He didn't care. Because God was saying, talk to the Samaritan woman. So if God tells you to lift your hands during worship, lift them, and who cares what anyone thinks? If God tells you to sing quietly, sing quietly. If God tells you to shout and you can't help yourself, Come on, this is the right place to do it. God is judging you on your heart. But typically, what's going on inside of here expresses itself here. Right? So here's how we're getting in today. I want you to stand up. Worship team, make the way up here. You know, it's only fitting that we probably respond today with actually worshiping God. And so here's what I want you to do. Um, as the worship team makes their way up here, typically on a Sunday we have a prayer team available. We're not doing that today. We're just going to everybody jump in and participate in worship. So here's what it's going to look like. Um, as we start off this song, I'm going to ask that every one of your eyes are closed. And the reason why I close my eyes during worship a lot of times is because, honestly, I just don't want to be distracted by the things. The same reason why I'm going to turn my cell phone off and I'm reading the Bible in the morning because I just get distracted and I think about the news and the weather and whatever else. It's, it's the same premise. Like when the priest stepped into the, to the Holy of Holies behind the veil, trust me, he didn't have any other distractions going on. It's pretty serious. So much so if he wasn't intent on God, he could be killed. Like in that moment. When, when Moses stepped inside the, inside the tent, he wasn't like distracted with something else. He was engaged with God. And so when we talk about worship, to be passionate about it means we step into this realm. We step into a place. We say, God, I want to give you my affections. I want to give you my feelings. I want to give you my, I want to give you my mind, my heart, my soul. What's it say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That includes your voice. That includes your body. That includes your mind. We want to engage them to say, God, I'm engaging you, and you've given me access to your presence through your son, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, now I have a place to worship you. I know that worshiping you brings you glory. It just, you love it. You love it when the people of God get together and say, we're going to sing, and we're going to clap, and we're going to shout, and we're going to dance, and we're going to get our hearts right before you, Lord. So God, I ask right now in this moment, we would humble our hearts as as we close our eyes, and that whatever you're calling us to do, to literally step towards you, that we would step towards you. We would, we would be active in our worship. We would participate. We'd say, God, we're stepping near to you.
you've given us access, but now we have to step into that place to experience the presence of God in our midst. Lord, would you come as we worship you this morning?